4 p.m., Let's Talk with John Kane will be on the air. He's preempted uh, this week. He'll be back on the air next week. Stay tuned for an expanded edition of Driving Forces with Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons coming up.
Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz, and we are kicking off a special two-hour edition of Driving Forces here today. So I'm glad to have you with me. This is a really, really exciting time for us, by the way, here at WBAI. We're trying to raise $7,500 today as part of our mission to give you better sound, better programming all around the clock. You can help us out. Give us a call, 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. You can even become a WBAI buddy in the name of our show, Driving Forces, so we can keep on bringing you interesting guests and get your voice on the air and have you share what's on your mind. You can support non-commercial, non-corporate radio. Text WBAI to 41444 or just go to WBAI.org right now. Help us raise $1,200 during this hour. You know, your generosity helps us keep you on. Listening to great programs, we have so many good public affairs shows, especially right around this time of day. We have Democracy Now!, we have City Watch, we have Joy of Resistance, we have Waking Up with Juliana Forlano. You know, all these programs are really things that you do not get on television or on other radio stations. This is a very, very special experience. This is listener-supported, non-corporate, non-commercial radio. It is not like anything that you can get anywhere else. WBAI is very special, and it's been very special to a lot of people for a long time here in the city. Show your support for us, 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602. You can also support our More Than Mics campaign. This is especially exciting for us. Uh, we are building out a brand new master control studio, and it's going to have new mics, a new board, new phone lines, so we can bring you better sound take more of your calls. And if you if you really believe in the mission of WBAI, if you've been listening to it since maybe you were a kid or you're maybe listening to it at work or during your commute, when you wake up in the morning, you come home in the evening, you can really help us out. This is the time to call 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602. And if you want to help us get across the finish line and build out that new master studio, Call up and say you want to support more than mics, 516-620-3602. We are going to have our first guest coming up pretty shortly. We are um, actually having a bunch of special guests here in this two-hour edition of Driving Forces. I'll be joined a little bit later on by my usual co-host, the great Jeff Simmons. And he's the guy actually who got me involved here Uh in uh, WBAI. He has uh, brought me into the studio, and uh, that was back in September. But, uh, you know, he's also, I might add, the uh, he is the host of another program, which is called City Watch, and you can hear him as well on Sundays in addition to uh, listening to him here with me on Thursdays uh, right here on Driving Forces. And, you know, again, I just want to go back and say this from a very personal standpoint. When I ask you to call the number 516-620-3602 and lend your support to WBAI, this is a very personal thing to me. Radio means a lot to me. It's meant a lot to me. Independent 
local news programming and commentary is really important to me. I've been a reporter for a very long time in a lot of different formats. And I want to say that WBAI is something really, really special. So you can be part of this. You can support commercial-free, non-corporate radio, 516-620-3602. Or it's even as easy as just texting WBAI to 41444 right now on your smartphone. So one of the great things about supporting BAI is that you can also get actually some really cool gifts. And uh, one of the uh, special gifts that we are happy to present uh, for your pledge of just $60 here on Driving Forces is a copy of a brand new book that I think you'll really like. It's called Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. And it is by a gentleman named Daryl West. He is Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington, which is, as you very well may know, is one of the most important think tanks uh, in the country. He also taught political science uh, for many, many years at Brown University, and that's where I met him. But he's also got a really interesting life story. He talks about the exceptional amount of rancor and partisanship that we're going through right now in our country, but he does it in a very interesting way. And so that's why I'm very glad to actually present uh, uh, a chance for you to listen to his story. We're very glad to have Daryl West right here on Driving Forces. Professor West, thanks for being on the show. Celeste, it's nice to be with you. And we certainly appreciate your generosity in uh, helping us out with copies, autographed, autographed copies. I, I remember bothering you when you were talking to uh, more important people to, uh, to autograph these books. And I just want to say thank you because I really, really enjoyed every page of this book. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I've been getting a great response. Uh, people like the personal story, and um, I look forward to hearing people's reactions. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know you've talked about the book on uh, C-SPAN, MSNBC. I know I'm a little, I'm a little hurt that you didn't come to WBAI first, but you can, uh, you can <laughs> make it, make it up to us now. But uh, well, maybe start off. You know, I was saying a little bit earlier that you. Uh, get into the what you call hyper-conflict, the real rifts in our society, but you do it in a very personal way. So maybe for our listeners, tell us a little bit about why you were in a sort of unique position to do that. Well, I have an unusual background, so I thought a memoir format would be the best way to tell the story. So I grew up in rural Ohio on a dairy farm, so I used to milk cows before I went to school, and it obviously was a very conservative area, both in terms of politics and religion. But then, as you mentioned, I taught political science for 26 years at Brown University, which is a very liberal institution. So. I've lived among both the liberal and conservative tribes. And then in terms of my immediate family, my two sisters stayed in the rural community where I grew up, uh, married local farmers. Uh, they are Christian fundamentalists, and they love Donald Trump. And then I have a brother who is liberal and gay, and he is not a big fan of uh, Donald uh, Trump. So I wanted to write the book just to tell the story about why liberals and conservatives are angry with one another, draws on 40 years of conversations I've had with my family, with uh, work uh, colleagues, uh, people I went to high school with. So it basically covers uh, American history from Reagan to uh, Trump and outlines how we got to this point of widespread polarization and what we can do about it. And before we get to some of that, to some of the, the theory, I just have to ask, and this is something I think I asked you at your uh, book launch that you had here in uh, in New York, which is, 
how did you feel about sharing these intimate details about about your growing up and your family? And how did your family feel about it? Well, it is a very uh, personal book, so I reveal the many details about my uh, family, my uh, background, and so on. Uh, my grandfather was a member of the KKK, so that's pretty embarrassing to have to admit. But, you know, it's relevant in telling a story about where I came from. I don't think my uh, siblings were surprised at any of the stories that I told, but there were things in there I'm sure they would have preferred that I not uh, tell because that they are a little embarrassing. But, you know, in talking about how America has reached this point of great polarization, you know, you have to understand where liberals are coming from, where conservatives are coming from. And so I talk about, you know, some of the family experiences. I remember one Christmas dinner uh, during the Bush administration when the subject of torturing Iraqi prisoners of war came up. And a couple of my brother-in-laws were defending the use of torture by U.S. forces. And my wife at the time, understanding that my relatives were very religious, raised the provocative question of, well, what would Jesus say about torturing uh, prisoners? And, of course, both of us fully expected the answer would be, oh, no, well, you know, on religious grounds, we certainly cannot condone that. But we ended up having a very lively discussion with the family split in the sense some supported torture, others said Jesus would not support that torture. But, you know, it's just an indication of how I try and get uh, below the headlines and kind of uh, get into how people really think, how they talk, uh, what are the uh, debates uh, that are going on, and how we should think about them. One of the things that I found really striking, and by the way, if you're just joining us here on WBAI, this is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz. I am speaking with Daryl West of the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Divided Politics, Divided Nation, which is a way of looking at what he calls hyper-conflict, uh, extreme partisanship in the United States through the lens of his own family experiences. And uh, one of the things when we're talking about, as you mentioned earlier, you have two sisters who remained in this uh, rural part of of Ohio, uh, where you grew up, and they remain sort of very conservative fundamentalist. Your brother is gay, is uh, much more liberal. I think it's fair to call you somewhat more on the liberal end of the of the spectrum. Um, I'm more with my brother than my sisters on politics. Definitely. I, that was that was the, that was the sense I got, and I, I think that especially in uh, sort of liberal academia, you know, the East Coast, I'm I'm not sure that. Uh, uh, the other way around would have worked. But, uh, you know, it's, it's striking to me throughout the book, you talk about your family and even some of your friends, uh, you know, having these views that are extremely conservative, very different from your own and from that of your brother. But you're still family. You're still friends with these people. I, I know people who say, I can't even talk to my relatives anymore. They, they, they love Donald Trump. They drive me crazy. How, how do you make this work? Well, it is uh, funny uh, being in Washington D.C. and uh, working in Brookings. I've I've had conversations with people, and, and they say, "God, you know, I don't know anybody who voted for Donald Trump." And I tell them, "I know hundreds of people who have uh, done it. Many of my family members in Ohio uh, did." Uh, courtesy of Facebook, I've now reconnected with a number of high school classmates, uh, including some people who I literally have not seen in 35 or 40 years, but now because of Facebook, uh, we are friends again and we've resumed the relationship. Most of those uh, people are uh, supporting uh, President uh, Trump. So uh, Trump didn't cause the polarization, but he certainly has intensified it. And I think it's challenging for a lot of people. Uh, Since the book came out, I've gotten lots of emails from people saying, 
I really enjoyed reading about your family. Now let me tell you about my family. And they go on and talk about the divisions within their uh, own uh, families. And so I think a lot of people are struggling just to, to figure out, you know, how do you relate to brothers or sisters sisters or uh, aunts or uncles who don't share your political uh, perspective? And our family is unusual in the sense that even though we're sharply divided by politics and religion, we actually have still remained a family. Uh, we talk regularly. I go back to Ohio at least uh, once a year, so I see my uh, sisters. You know, we call each other on birthdays. We exchange holiday uh, 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 presents. I think we agreed a long time ago uh, to disagree on uh, politics. I mean, even going back to the Reagan years, we were pretty divided then, and you know, it's kind of intensified uh, since then. So the advice that I give is, you know, keep talking uh, with uh, people. You know, even if you uh, uh, disagree with them, and you also have to accept the, the very hard notion that you can't try to persuade them. Like if you are fundamentally different from them on uh, politics. Don't enter the conversation assuming that you can persuade them, because that is never going to happen. And so I think that has been a secret of with my uh, brother and my two sisters and, and myself. It's like we keep talking, uh, including we talk about politics, uh, but we don't try and persuade the other. Uh, I talk with them uh, to try and understand their viewpoint, because I want to understand why conservatives think the way they do and why people are continuing to support Trump, despite some of the crazy things he's doing. And does that extend, I guess it would be a little bit of a different case, but I'm curious when you talk about, say, agreeing to disagree, that's sort of the opposite of what happens in a campaign when you are trying to convince people, when you're trying to persuade them and say, look, maybe you think this now, but as a matter of fact, it's smarter to think this, or you may like this guy now, but you should like me more. You know, you've covered a lot of, uh, you've studied, I should say, covered a lot of uh, campaigns. Uh, You know, what's the difference between doing this within your own home, but say having a cause that you really believe in politically and trying to convince other people to come over to your side? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, you know, if you are an advocate and have a point of view and want to persuade others and you want to win uh, elections, you need to do all those things of, uh, of reaching out uh, to people. But in a family context, it is a very uh, different situation. And I remember during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings uh, for the Supreme uh, Court, it was a very contentious uh, uh, time. Uh, surveys indicated 90% of Republicans uh, sympathized with Kavanaugh and wanted him uh, confirmed to the court. About 90% of Democrats uh, did not. So as soon as he ended up being confirmed on, I think it was a 50 to 48 vote, like you know, the most sharply divided Supreme Court nomination that we've ever had, mm. I contacted my three siblings, and you know, they knew I was working on the book, so I told them I wanted to interview them. Uh, and I told them, don't tell me anything that you don't want to end up in the book because uh, I'm you know, going to use it. They all did the uh, interviews, and my two sisters thought it was outrageous uh, that people were going back to uh, Kavanaugh's high school that days and, and, and dredging up some of his allegedly uh, poor uh, conduct. Uh, they thought that was unfair. They thought the media were uh, trying to steamroll him. My brother took a very different stance on it. He didn't like Kavanaugh, did not feel that he should be uh, confirmed. And so, you know, we managed to keep having those conversations, even though my family is very divided on that. So, you know, people just have to uh, kind of accept that your family relationships are different from a political campaign or any type of public activity in which you might engage. One of the other things that really interested uh, me 
uh, in your discussion of sort of how you got from there to here was that you acknowledge that based on where you came from, you know, geographically, economically, culturally, the odds of you uh, ending up where you are today, being a, an academic, uh, being an author of how many books is it now? Like 24, three? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of books. Okay. And, you know, meeting uh, presidents, traveling internationally, doing all this research. A lot of your friends didn't end up that way, right? I mean, I basically won the lottery. I mean, that's the honest uh, answer. So, you know, it was a poor working class uh, family. Uh, in our home, we actually did not have an indoor bathroom until I was the age of uh, six. And But the lucky break for me really was college and being able to get a college education. Like, that was really uh, transformational. And I remember the way that it happened and the reason I feel so fortunate uh, uh, to have had uh, good luck in this regard my father wanted to expand his acreage, but he needed to buy a tractor to do it, but he could not afford it, so he had to take out a loan. He had never really wanted my mother to work off the farm, but because he needed this tractor, he they worked out a deal in which he said, okay, you know, you can work off the farm for the duration of the loan, then you have to quit and uh, come back home. So they agreed to do that. I was fortunate that we lived 10 miles from a really great university, Miami University in Ohio, and that's where she went to find a job, and she was fortunate she got a job. And what was fortunate for me is they had a uh, employee tuition plan in which, and this is going back to the 1970s, my annual tuition at Miami turned out to be $125. So basically I had virtually a free uh, college education, and that's what allowed me to um, make the uh, breakthrough. I was also fortunate that when I graduated from college in 1976, that turned out to be one of the most egalitarian times in American history. Like, if you look at the income distribution, like there are economists at Berkeley who have compiled uh, the percent uh, of national income that the top 1% have earned over each year over the last 100 years. The most egalitarian point turned out to be 1976, the exact time when I was uh, graduating. So I was fortunate that the American dream was alive and well then. I was able to get uh, a college education uh, very uh, inexpensively, and that really was what propelled my career and gave me tremendous opportunities. It's interesting because we hear so much talk right now, of course, of about whether uh, public universities and colleges should be free and how much student debt people are struggling with. Um, you know, maybe people feel like they don't have the opportunity to go to college or it's not worth it because of the, the economic burden and uh, some people decide to skip it. And look, maybe not, you know, maybe not for everybody to have uh, you know, a formal university education. People do quite well uh, with that one in many cases. But um, I think in the book you describe at the beginning saying that you weren't really sure about going to college and you took a different kind of job out of high school, right? Uh, I my. First job after high school uh, for the summer after uh, graduation was being a janitor, and uh, because I just it wasn't clear to me that I wanted to go to college at that uh, point. And but after a summer of uh, being a janitor, I went to college. Uh, like uh, that uh, September, I enrolled in uh, Miami, uh, and uh, you know th that uh, allowed me uh, to do well. And I think the problem today is. You know, many of the things that propelled me several decades ago 
are a lot harder now. Mm -hmm. It's like the American dream, which really was alive and well when I was uh, coming of age, it's a lot harder now. You know, college is a lot more expensive. You know, you can pay 35000 to 50000 to 75000 per year uh, at uh, on uh, at college. Buying the first home is a lot more expensive. Healthcare is a lot more expensive. So we need to kind of realize that, you know, in order to provide the kind of opportunity that I had, uh, you know, we need fairer tax policies, uh, we need to invest uh, in education, we need to make sure there's not too much economic insecurity that arises from health uh, problems, because those are the things that helped me uh, do well, but it's very challenging for young people today. Just as a side note, too, I thought it was very interesting in the book, uh, since we're talking so much now about immigration and the president, of course, is talking about building the wall and changing the policies and making things much stricter. In addition to talking about yourself, you talked about what you and your wife went through in terms of uh, her obtaining U.S. citizenship, and that seems to have left an impression on you. Well, it was a very difficult process. So we got married. She was from uh, Germany. I just assumed that when you got married, like the spouse automatically qualified for citizenship, not understanding you actually have to go through the full process. It's lengthy. It's expensive. There were lots of hurdles along the way. I mean, I had a Ph.D. in political science, so I falsely assumed it would be an easy process, and it turned out to be complicated. They initially turned down her uh, request for uh, citizenship, uh, because, like, if you show them a marriage license, that only proves you were married on that date. You know, they want evidence that you stayed married, you were living together. It was a real marriage in, in the years uh, between uh, the marriage point and the time you're applying uh, for uh, citizenship. So we had to file an appeal. We eventually uh, won the appeal, so everything uh, worked out okay. But as I was going through the process, I kept thinking, like, you know, if somebody is poor, if they don't speak English uh, very well, like, they're going to have a heck of a time navigating uh, that process. And, you know, we'd go to these processing centers, and I would just see all these people around me, and I would think, wow, you know, th- the process is incredibly challenging for those people. And it certainly uh, says something. Well, it says quite a few things. It says something about American government bureaucracy, and maybe it also says something about uh, our attitudes towards immigrants, or is that going too far? Well, people don't understand the important role that immigrants have uh, played in U.S. prosperity, in our technology innovation. Uh, like half of the Silicon Valley uh, firms had either an immigrant founder or a co-founder. Mm-hmm. So innovation and immigration are closely tied together. So part of my concern about today's negative views about immigration is, uh, you know, if we really slow down immigration, it's going to hurt our technology sector, it's going to limit our innovation, and then there's a risk. It could actually endanger American prosperity. And you've been really generous with your time, Professor West, so I have one more question for you, um, which maybe hopefully is a way to, to sort of wind it up. You're describing the ways that people could potentially become less siloed in their beliefs. You mentioned in the book about people having, if you look at people's closest friends, they often are people who look like them. People read news sources or social media that cleaves to their own opinions uh, and so on. And we're getting to this sort of cataclysmic point. And you make a reference to this idea of what you call take, take a conservative or a liberal to lunch, you know, tell us a little bit about 
why that might be part of the answer because I, I agree that I have seen people who are tremendously, tremendously not interested in listening to people on the other side of, an, of any argument. Well, today, everybody wants to live in their own bubble. Like, we want to be surrounded by like-minded individuals. And, you know, if you're a liberal, you don't want to go to lunch with a Trump supporter and vice versa. I mean, there actually been national surveys showing 50% of Republicans today say they would be upset if one of their children married a Democrat. And 33% of Democrats feel exactly the same way. So in the conclusion of the book, having, you know, outlined this incredible polarization and how it's really intensified over the last 40 years and it's gotten a lot worse under Trump, I try and think about, well, what can we do about this? And there's structural reforms that we need to make, you know, improving economic opportunity, uh, restoring the American uh, dream improving our governance so we can actually address some of our important problems. But people need to diversify their sources of information. Uh, like I try and read liberal, moderate, and conservative uh, sources. I watch uh, Fox News from time to time because I want to understand what they're doing. But people also in their personal lives, I think, need to reach out to other people and just try and understand uh, them. I mean, on too many occasions today, people view opponents as enemies. Everybody has their own facts. In that type of situation, we're never going to solve the problem. Daryl West is the author of Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. And Professor West, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, the book is available through uh, Amazon, and uh, a lot of the uh, uh, work that we're uh, doing is available uh, free online at brickings.edu. Daryl West, it's been a pleasure to have you here on Driving Forces. Thank you, Celeste. Thank you so much. And you are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM New York. We're streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz, and this is a special two-hour edition of Driving Forces. And we were just speaking to uh, Daryl West. Uh, He is vice president of governance studies at the Brookings Institution, which is a big, important think tank in Washington. And he wrote a book called Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. And uh, as uh, in addition to that conversation, which, by the way, I thought was really interesting, and and I'm going to go back and probably read parts of the book again. I really enjoyed it. Uh, If you want to support us here at WBAI so we can get different perspectives like that that you just heard in that interview, please give us a call, 516-620. 3602-516-620-3602. If that discussion, that memoir that we just talked about, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, sounded interesting to you, we are lucky enough for a certain uh, for a certain group of uh, supporters here for a gift of just $60. You can get an autographed copy of Divided Politics, Divided Nation. And it really talks a lot about about what's going on in our country, but it doesn't do it in a dry way, in a boring way. This is somebody talking about their own life. This is a, a man who grew up in a fundamentalist Christian environment, working with his hands on a farm in rural Ohio, who later went on to to travel the world, to meet presidents, to to teach at a, a major university and so on, to do research uh, about how we 
live and how we think in American political life and in our social lives. Very, very interesting. And it's a really great opportunity, a really great read. This can uh, be yours for a gift, again, of just $60. That's about $2 a day. This uh, Our fundraising sweep is going through May or until June 2nd. That's $2 a day if you think about it. Uh, 516-620-3602, or you can just go to WBAI to donate. You can also just text WBAI on your smartphone to 41444. And Professor West is uh, just one example of some of the really cool guests that we've been able to have here on Driving Forces. We've had uh, the former head of the Democratic Party, Howard Dean. We've had locally public advocate Jumani Williams. Uh, on the state level, we've had Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Uh, we are the station that brought you full coverage of the Judge Brett Kavanaugh hearings, you know, really groundbreaking testimony there with uh, uh, accusations of misconduct from uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, we brought you gavel to gavel uh, broadcast of Michael Cohen's testimony to Congress, obviously really, really important to what's going on right now with Washington, with the president. I was glad to be able to uh, to be here with you for the full kickoff rally of Bernie Sanders. When did he started you, did his... you really enjoy that? I did. I yeah. did. Well, the best part of it was, I, th- well, I think the best part of the Cohen hearings might have been, I think, about hour four when, when you let me have a sandwich. That was pretty cool. <laughs> We, we are here with our program director, our awesome program director, <laughs> Linda Perrybar. I, I just felt like, oh my goodness, Celeste, you need to eat something. But oh. you were you were really something to, no. to be here all through that. Very interesting. And our listeners like that. Our listeners like you like listening to um, our special programming. I know that it means something to you. That it's important to you. That it makes you um, it makes you happy to have an alternative window on the world, a progressive window on the world that is WBAI. And we are in the uh, midst of actually this is the end of week two. I've just uh, been working on the schedule for week three and week four for our fun drive, but this could be over. This could just be over immediately if you go to your phone, call 516-620-3602 and become a member, a listener supporter of WBAI because you know that WBAI is important to you because you get information, you get thought, you get, um, in, you get contacts, you get context from WBAI. And that's one of the most important things, I think, you know, when we present news is to put it in context. That's what's missing in in the mainstream media, as well as some of the other things. We could go on and on about what's missing in the mainstream (laughs) media. But 516-620-3602 is the number to call to become a listener member of WBAI. We thank those of you who have called and become members. We're doing quite well. um, But if we get some large contributions, I think we need about 3,000 more to finish the studio. We had started out at $10,000. If we get $3,000 more, we can finish off our new studio, um, WBAI's new studio. It's not our new studio. It's WBAI's. It's your new studio. 516-620-3602. There's a program called More for Mics. You can go on our website, give to 
WBAI.org or WBAI.org and click on the microphone. There's a photo of a microphone and, you know, give some, uh, give $50 is, is what we were looking for, but more is great if you can contribute more. And I think we have a thank you gift um, if you contribute today. Celeste, what, what have you here? Yeah, we were just lucky enough to uh, have a conversation with Daryl West. He is a, a major academic at the Brookings Institution, a think tank, and he has given us autographed copies of his memoir, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, in which he tells the story about this incredible amount of uh, what he calls hyperconflict uh, in the Trump era, people being extremely, literally unable, even within their own families, to talk to each other. And he talks about how this is uh, possibly going to be resolved, but he does it in a really interesting personal way through the lens of his own family. He grew up on a rural uh, farm in Ohio, he worked with his hands, grew up in a home that didn't even have an indoor bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um you know, later found out his grandfather had been in the KKK. And to, wow. Yeah, and he admits, you know, goes through this, you know, what this means to him in the book. And he still has two sisters who live in Ohio and are extremely conservative. They grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household. But he is more liberal, as is his brother, Ken, who is gay, openly gay, and uh, does not want to have much to do with Donald Trump. So through this own, you know, this own experience of, coming from a rural environment to the eastern seaboard and academia, from having grown up in this very sort of insulated community with differences now, even within his own family, between his own sisters and brothers. He tells this great story. So we're really happy to uh, to have this. And he did autograph the copies. Uh, the copies for us and we are asking for a pledge of $60. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, and it's it, I I read this book cover to cover. How many how many I can see that you did? I'm looking at I, this. I know all I'm that. looking the the uh, chapter 1 mistrust. Yeah, it's it's incredible mistrust. if you mistrust. And this is somebody by the way, a full disclosure, this uh this man Professor West was my teacher ah. in college. Ah. And I mm-hmm. I I said to him I was like, "Oh my god, I did not know so many of these things." Uh, before I read this book about you, just the amazing and frankly weird experiences that he's had with some uh, political figures, but also within his own family. And it's just a really good, you know, in the same way WBAI gives you a window into lots of different cultures and lots of different ways of thought. This book, uh, uh, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, I'm really glad to be able to offer it to our listeners. Again, that's a pledge of $60. If you give us a call, 516-620-3602-516-620-3602. And you ask for Divided Politics, Divided Nation, the book. Divided Politics, Divided Nation. This is a special edition of Driving Forces. Celeste Katz and uh, Jeff Simmons are the host of this, the hosts of this uh, new program here on WBAI. You've been on WBAI since September. Since September, okay, and it's a really good program. You listen to it. Please support it. Please support WBAI and all the programs here at WBAI. Give us a call, 516-620-3602. Ask for a copy of Divided Politics, Divided Nation, and you will uh, receive an autographed copy of this book. But you, And also you'll be supporting WBAI. You'll be listening to WBAI in the future, and you'll say, oh, yeah, well, I'm a member. I'm a member of WBAI. I'm part of WBAI. I listen to WBAI. I listen five hours a week. Maybe I listen 10 hours a week. Maybe I listen more. 
I'm a member of WBAI because I believe in WBAI being a non-commercial, non-corporate radio station, which only survives because of our listeners. It's totally 100% listener-supported WBAI. WBAI has been around since almost 60 years now. 516-620-3602. Give what you can. 516 620 $10 a month makes you a WBAI buddy. You get one of those lovely, very, very large, strong tote bags, which you can put two bags of grocery into. And you'll also get various perks. Um, one of the things that we are giving away are some tickets um, for um, Sunday. Do you have that cart, uh, by the way, Reggie, that you can play? Um, the cart for the pen event? Do we have that yet or not yet? We can, if we if we don't, can we could bring it up after our next guest? Yeah, we'll guest bring it too. up after. Yeah, yeah, that's that would be good to do. Okay, so this is listener-sponsored WBAI in New York, and we so appreciate your support. Please give us a call at 516-620-3602. That's the number to call. Again, you get a copy of this book, Divided Politics, Divided Nation. Is that, that's the... Yeah, by Daryl West of the Brookings Institution. For a $60 pledge. And we, um, we thank you so much for your calls. I'm just trying to pull up that... Uh, that cart that I um, had sent, but I will do that. So 516-620-3602 is the number to call. Can we have a few more people? I see some people are calling, but can we have a few more callers calling right now? 516-620-3602. Become a member of WBAI for $25 a year, a voting member, or become a buddy, a sustaining member for $10 a month. 516-620-3602. Or if you have a smartphone, you can text WBAI to 41444. That's you. That's you. I'm asking you to do it. Text WBAI to 41444. 100% listener-sponsored radio. The other day, I was going through the dial, and we were not on. We had a problem, and we were not on. And I, you know, I put, I'm like turning the dial, and I'm going, oh, my God, look what's here in our place. And it wasn't good, folks. It wasn't good. It wasn't WBAI. It wasn't a progressive window on the world. It was like noise, lots of noise. I know you might think I sound like noise because I'm asking you to support the station, but that's not true. I'm asking you to support the station because you listen to it. 516-620-3602 is the number. And um, help us build that studio in the front of the uh, of this location that we're at, 388 Atlantic Avenue, the Commons. It's a very progressive building. We have Vocal New York in here. Laura Flanders has her program here. What else is in this building, Reggie? You're familiar with some of the other um, really You mean good, in this building? Yeah, in this building. We oh, have Jacobin. The, the, the Jacobin, Jacobin yeah. um, the Independent. The Independent is here. They do um, um, our Brooklyn newscast on Monday. Yeah, all of these really yeah. good groups. It's a really good building, 388 Atlantic Avenue, which is where we are now. And there's a performance space downtown. And we can, downstairs rather, and we can really make it, we can make a go here. We can be a winning station here. We can be, you know, we can develop more and we can connect more and we can, WBAI is really on an upswing. So please help the station, 516-620-3602 is the number to call. 
So please give us a call right now. And Celeste, what else do you have coming up? I know you have a full plate. Yeah, actually, we have a guest on the line. Our next guest is going to be joining us so we can talk a little bit more about something coming up next year, some sort of presidential election, I believe. Something's going on. Uh, so we have a, uh, a great guest. We have Lee Mirangoff from the Marist Poll, who is uh, going to help us break it down. And uh, we are very lucky to have him. But again, Linda is totally right. We rely on you. We are speaking directly to you. If you hear the sound of my voice right now, please give us a call. 516-620-3602. Maybe you listen to BAI a few hours a week every day. Maybe you've thought about giving a pledge. This is the time. This is the time to do it. 516-620-3602. And I think we are going to go now. And we, I, I want to thank him uh, very, very much for his patience. We are glad to present to this special edition of Driving Forces, Lee Miringoff. He is the director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion, uh, a member of the political science faculty at Marist College. Uh, and he, along with Barbara Carvalho, is uh, director of Marist Poll. He runs the NBC News Marist Poll and the NPR PBS NewsHour Marist Poll. That was a lot of words to say, Lee. Thank you for being here on WBAI. Yeah, my, I mean, my name's not much shorter either, so uh, <laughs> I hope we have some time to talk a little bit about the election. We do, we do, and we are very Good. lucky. You know, people who listen to WBAI care a lot about sure. what's going on in our country and who's running it, who's running the show. And uh, so we wanted to jump right in and... Uh, and who's not running the show. <laughs> <laughs> and who's not running the show says... Not, says yeah. Well, and that... That is actually a good place to begin because I was looking at uh, some of your recent polling and you, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you're you saying that from your findings, more than 50% of the people that you spoke to will not vote for President Trump in 2020. Not interested. One yeah. term, more than enough. What uh, yeah. What's going I mean, on what's, there? What's, you know, what's startling about that is when you ask at this point, and it's a long way away and all those kinds of things, but it's a measurement of where things are now. And we asked people whether they're definitely going to vote for President Trump or definitely going to vote against him. Now, very often, you know, if you're in the low 40s on that, you're not doing terribly uh, because some people are going to say, well, I'll wait and see who the candidates are, etc. Right now, though, when you have more than 50 percent of the uh, uh, of the electorate saying that they definitely don't plan on voting for him, including 60 percent among independents, then it's fairly quick to conclude that he's really in some electoral duress here. There's some peril to his re-election prospects, although we don't want to go down the the road of last time where everybody underestimated uh, what he could conceivably do in the end. He's a great closer. We saw that in 2016. We saw it in the midterm elections in 2018. Uh, But right now, there's a lot of folks here saying enough's enough and we want to move in a different direction uh, in the uh, next presidential election. And, uh, of course, recently, uh, since the last time I I spoke to you, certainly, uh, Vice President Joe Biden finally, finally got into the race. That was something that people have been expecting, took him a bit. And it looks like people people remember him. He raised a bunch of money early on, which I think he he had to do. At the same time, though, he also had to start his campaign with what 
I kind of think of as an apology tour, talking sure. about inappropriate contact, perhaps, with women, making women uncomfortable, but also apologizing to Anita Hill for uh, the way he treated her or the way he handled things when he was the head of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee during the uh, confirmation hearings uh, for Clarence Thomas. So uh, how does that all fit in? Is it like, oh, Uncle Joe is finally in it, hooray, or is it like, oh, uh, Uncle Joe, why are you starting your campaign by talking about being sorry about making people feel uh, creepy? I guess it depends on where you are in the Democratic primary voter spectrum. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he's going to position himself more to the middle, uh, and there is a sense that that's probably about where half the Democrats are, and in a crowded field, that can you know get you, as they say, a lane that is pretty much your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no other strong... Um, more centrist candidate. There's a lot of folks more to his left. Um, but clearly, in the early goings, they're likely to divide up the more progressive vote unless they rally or coalesce around one or two of the early folks. I mean, this is in reverse what happened to Donald Trump. I mean, there was such a crowd that, you know, he wasn't getting huge numbers. And by the time very few were left, there he was the only pin standing. And so for Joe Biden, you know, he represents certain parts within the Democratic Party and certainly a, um, a maturity and, a, you know, a purpose that, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats are going to be attracted to, even with this baggage that he brings to it. I mean, the disadvantage of having been around the track so many times, and he has run not great as a candidate on his own twice, <laughs> um, but the, the problem is, you know, you have some bruises that you've picked up along the way, and clearly more than a bruise are, are some of the things that have been raised, as you did, um, with Anita Hill, and also some of the issues that were, you know, related to, you know, the, the Me Too movement, for lack of a better phrase, but clearly there was some discussion on that. I think the Anita Hill thing, ultimately for Biden, is, is a bigger problem uh, just because that's a constituency that he needs to get in the end and whether Democrats will coalesce and rally and unify is a big deal uh, that they need regardless of who the nominee ends up being. And when you're when you're when you're making specific reference there, you're talking about African American women who are who vote at phenomenal rates in primaries, in general elections, and uh, are are sort of stalwarts within the Democratic sure. Party or, or, exactly. or and Yeah, exactly. And if you're talking about, you know, first off is Iowa, then there's New Hampshire. These are not particularly diverse states. But then when you move into places like South Carolina, where a majority of the Democratic vote will be people of African-American background, and Nevada, which is uh, which they say is Nevada, I think. I think I did the uh, mistaken pronunciation there, but... <laughs> Apologies if you're anybody uh, in the New York area who happens to be from there. Uh, but the, um, uh, you know, that, and that's obviously got a lot of Latino voters. Uh, and so the Democratic Party primary process shifts from Iowa and New Hampshire, which will winnow down this huge field, I'm sure, because people are going to, you know, dry up uh, their cash flow and uh, won't be able to go on fumes after that. But then you get to people, people of color, uh, you know, in South Carolina and Nevada, who become such an important part of the primary process. And then we go right into Super Tuesday, where you have these huge states, 
uh, including Colorado, I'm sorry, including California and Texas, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of others. Uh, that will divvy up a lot of the delegates. So, I mean, it's early to get into a delegate count and all those kinds of things, but the bottom line is, for the Democratic Party, um, the issue of electability may be stronger this time because of the sense that Donald Trump is running for re-election, and that may be the biggest unifier that the Democrats have going for him. This is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz talking to Lee Miringoff, director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion, home, of course, of the Marist Poll. And we are talking about election 2020. And uh, Lee, I wanted to ask you real quick, um, obviously a lot going on this week with the Mueller report, sure. uh, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and you know, maybe people in the media or people, you know, people on television, on the radio uh, mm-hmm. who write for papers make a, a big deal. And, you know, this is this is the be all end all. I'm just curious, as far as Marist's uh, surveys, what yeah. are what are, like real people think of it? Is, <laughs> is this what they care about? Well, and the short answer is not really. Um, in other words, when you ask people about issues, the, the key things driving voters, motivating voters, are things like health care and education, uh, infrastructure, immigration reform. Uh, no surprise in terms of what really is the behind a lot of what the Democratic majority in the House was all about in 2018. Nonetheless, uh, they're not in a position to, in Congress, to totally turn their backs and end everything as you know, Mitch McConnell and the White House would like to happen. Um, interestingly, there's a lot of interesting aspects to this, one of which is that the most Americans, including an awful lot of Republicans, thought that the Mueller investigation was fair. Uh, the argument that it was a hoax and, and, and uh, you know, no collusion and all the things the president had been saying mm. hundreds of times uh, did not punch through, even with many of his own base. Um, whether they're upset about it is not a different matter, but they thought the investigation was fair. A lot of people are, though, willing to kind of, despite the fact that they don't think the full story has been told and that there's still questions that remain, uh, they're, on the other hand, are not eager to drag out a long investigative process. So when you see the Republicans in Congress or in the White House saying, enough's enough, let's wrap it up, uh, put a lid on it, they really have a sense of what public opinion's about, and clearly there isn't an appetite right now for an impeachment proceeding to begin. Uh, and I think Nancy Pelosi gets that, and yeah. uh, you know, I think she's been reluctant to move in that direction. Um, you're likely to be further hearings, further investigations, but the Democrats are going to have to be a little careful about not overplaying their hand. There's a fine line between investigating, bringing people in, continuing the process, and also then moving in the direction of impeachment. And people are going to react very differently to those two, the two eyes, as it were, in investigations versus impeachment. Maybe that's a, a perfect segue to uh, I, what I think is my last question here, but I did want to pick your brain on this a little bit. Uh, now, obviously, Trump is uh, saying, look, uh, this is obviously no collusion, no obstruction. I think he's tweeted that at least two or three times. I don't know. Um, but OK, so and we know it's first of all, generally, generally, it's hard to beat an incumbent, whatever you think of the guy, sure. Sure. Is, you know, yep. love, love him or hate him. Uh, he is in the White House. He has raised a ton of money. So the yep. the $64,000 question 
that I'm curious about and, you know, from what you've uh, found in your research, where where his weak spots? Because obviously that's what everybody is going to is going to try to be looking for every of the now. What is it? Twenty something. Twenty one two campaigns. Uh, uh, Democrats are trying to figure uh, out what's the what's the magic done. formula. It's not, it's not done yet. I mean, we'll, we'll be seeing more before the before we see fewer. Um, Okay, so it's a very important point you touch upon. This is a different Donald Trump just in terms of the environment which he now is running for. He's running for re-election. He's not the, you know, it's tough to be the consummate outsider when you're in the Oval Office. And it's tough to say you're going to get elected to drain the swamp when all this has been going on while you've been on your watch. So it's a different Donald Trump. Uh, it's also a Donald Trump who now has a record um, and so far, he hasn't built a wall which Mexico has paid for. Um, he hasn't solved the refugee. He hasn't uh, repealed and replaced Obamacare. Um, so, you know, there's going to be some sense of not delivering. Uh, and, and as I say, that's, that's, that's part of what comes with being an incumbent. You get the plus side. You get the resources. You clearly can do the so-called bully pulpit, which he does through uh, social media on a regular basis, but you don't get the opportunity to say, here, I'm coming from afar to clean up Washington. That you don't get enough. That one's done, and you have to move on from, from that. So the tactics may be similar. His style may be similar. What he says may be similar, but he's in a different environment in terms of being an incumbent as opposed to a challenger. Very, very different world we uh, we live in. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And Lee Meringoff, where can people find out more about you and about Marist and the Marist Poll? Well, you can go to our uh, website at Marist uh, College. You'll see it on the Marist Poll there. Uh, and also we do a weekly podcast, if I can jump in and say it's called yeah. Poll Hub. And we have a wonderful time with that. And we may even enlist you as a guest and see if uh, this deserves fair play, correct? So if uh, we can flip the, flip the side on this and talk about media and the, and the role of the, the press in this campaign, because there's an awful lot going on in the world of journalism and, and, and media coverage, political coverage of, of the election. So. It Who knows? Would, it would be it would be my honor, and that is always the question, right? Who knows? But that's what we're that's what we're all trying to figure out yeah. here. Uh, Lee Miringoff is the director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion, and Lee, it's great to talk to you, and I'm yep. very very glad that you were able to make it on the show. Oh, absolutely, anytime. Thanks so much. And we are going to be rounding up pretty soon this first hour of a two-hour special edition of Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live on WBAI.org. I'll be joined by my co-host, that's Jeff Simmons. We are always together here every Thursday at 5 o'clock. But before I uh, let you go and we take a brief break, just want to remind you once again, if you're enjoying the programming that you hear here about politics, about public policy, about voting about uh, culture, about how we are living, not to mention, not to mention all, of course, all of our arts uh, programming, our health programming, and uh, the many, many other offerings, and of course, the music programming that we have here on WBAI. This is a great, great time to show us that you really care and that you would like to help us continue on this mission of providing New York with non-commercial, non-corporate, listener-supported programming. Please give us a call, 516 620 
516-620-3602. Help us stay on the air. Help us build out this new studio that we have going on in the front. And it is awesome, by the way. We have a, uh, a special program for that. It's called the More Than Mics Campaign. And your generous gift will help us get across the finish line with this beautiful new master control studio so we can bring you better sound, better calls, and better programs every day right here at WBAI. donation, Steve Langane or Langenia. Um, Steve, thank you so much from Brooklyn, New York for your contribution. And what I love so much is the contribution was made in the name of all WBAI programs. So thank you so much, Steve. And please call 516-620-3602. This is WBAI's Marathon. And you're listening to Driving Forces right here over this listener-sponsored, non-commercial, non-corporate radio station, 100% listener-sponsored. 516-620-3602 is the number to call. And you guys are doing just like a fabulous job. So appreciate it. 516-620-3602 is the number to call. Or go to your smartphone. Text WBAI to 41444. Again, text WBAI to 41444. Become a member. It's only $25 for a full year. Or do what Steve did from Brooklyn. Give us a large, give WBAI a large contribution if you can. And we so appreciate it. WBAI so appreciates your support because you listen to the station and you know it's important to you. Absolutely. And we are. And that was, by the way, uh, Linda Perry Barr. She is our program director here. And thank you for the compliment, Linda. And thank you for teaching me a lot about radio and how important it is to not be afraid to remind people that if you believe in independent media, we have what's called news deserts out there.